Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. Welcome, everybody. This is an AFR podcast. Today, I'm joined by Captain Rob Laprise and Chief Chris Ortiz. Welcome, guys. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So today's topic is going to be MSEP calls. Um, and with that, we're going to tie in like calls to seven, eight and some of the common things you guys hear. So uh, Chief Ortiz, actually, if you could remind people of your time as seven, eight before you promoted and uh, maybe uh, kind of just a little brief summary of your career. Absolutely. Thank you. So EMS Chief Chris Ortiz, I've been with the department now just shy of 16 years, uh, spent roughly two years prior to my position here as the B-Shift 7-8, currently serving as the EMS Chief uh, for Albuquerque Fire Rescue and handle a lot of the administrative and operational items that deal with EMS. So loving this department. Um, A lot of great things have come from this EMS division, and I attribute a lot of the success that we've had in the EMS division to the 7-8s and what they've done over the years. So I'm really appreciative and happy to be here. Awesome. So I think you'd be in a great position to uh, just dis- define a MSEP call for us and then maybe talk about the unique position that we're in to uh, have the consortium docs that we're able to call on on, a, on scene. So the MSEP or the acronym is Medical Control Emergency Physician is a physician that we can call on when we are operating either outside of our guidelines or we have a difficult case or a difficult refusal on an EMS scene. Here in Albuquerque Fire Rescue, we have the unique position of having the EMS consortium through a collaboration with University of New Mexico Hospital and the EMS Academy. So to give some light on what the EMS consortium program is, is you have a fellowship for one year where emergency medical physicians are studying essentially to become medical directors for an agency much like ours. So what it does, it gives them an opportunity to work alongside EMS professionals, uh, both uh, the fire-based and non-fire-based EMS, to be able to craft their skills, to be able to eventually become medical directors of their own organization. So we have the luxury of having that uh, capability. Now what we've done is we've crafted it to where the three EMS consortium fellows are assigned to A, B, and C shifts. And they essentially serve as an on-shift medical director uh, that can help us in difficult situations and helping guiding our craft and guiding our guidelines. Awesome. I think they also have a little bit of uh, on-scene capability too. Do you uh, know what those are well enough to speak on it? Absolutely. So they do have some um, response capability as well. Obviously, they're in an SUV. Uh, They have lights and sirens capability to be able to go to any one of our scenes. They're monitoring the radio. They're available to us uh, 48 hours for each shift. And if we have a difficult refusal, obviously we can call them. If we have a difficult case or we have an emergent situation where we need additional assistance, let's say, for instance, as extreme as an on-scene amputation, then we can call out those emergency medical physicians to the scene to be able to help guide our treatment. Awesome. All right, Rob, so we're going to get into the actual MSEP call. So can you uh, just give everybody an example of what a good MSEP call is going to sound like? And uh, after that, we'll talk about, you know, the important uh, bullet points to remember. Okay, great. So for example, let's talk about a, let's say you're calling for a, a DC order on a cardiac arrest. So a good MSEP call, Andrew, can you be the physician? 
Uh, gladly, yeah. Okay. So, <clears throat> hello, uh, Dr. Andrew. This is uh, Rob Laprise with AFR. I'm calling today for a DC on a cardiac arrest. This is a 78-year-old female. We found her in a uh, fine V-fib. She was down probably five or six minutes. We, sh we defibrillated the, the V-fib once, and since then she's been in asystolic arrest for like the last 25 minutes. Uh, we did her end title. It's showing like 22. Um, we have not ultrasounded the asystole, and all providers are in agreement for the DC. We think it's futile. That's sort of one example of an organized. Awesome. Uh, All right. So maybe we should go right into a bad MSEP call and then we can discuss the differences and, and, uh, what, what made the first example so much better. Okay. Uh, hello, Dr. Andrew. This is, uh, Rob. Um, uh, I'm on scene with a, uh, 78-year-old cardiac arrest. We've been working like, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes. And uh, we've given a couple doses of epinephrine, and the Lucas has been running. And uh, she is intubated. And uh, we have an IO. And uh, the family is here. And she has a full code. And, <clears throat> well, we're just um, calling to kind of get your thoughts on it all and see what you think. Okay. Yeah. So I think that, uh, you know, the first takeaway I have is uh, get to the point, I guess. So I don't know what your recommendations would be. but Yeah, it's pretty easy. My recommendations is always introduce yourself, your full name, what truck you are whether you're AAS 3046 or Rescue 16, uh, announce yourself, tell them why you're calling. Exactly. I'm calling for X. And then justify it with bullets below that. And that's usually a concise, organized call. Um, so you have your goal. You're calling for an increased dose of fentanyl. And then justify why you think you should get this order. That way the physician is clear on what you're asking, what their job is, because we really try to teach the physicians that, you know, if we're calling for an order, most likely it's a legitimate order. You just have to listen to them and make sure it's not crazy. So they'll give you the order most of the time. You just have to have it in the right format to not confuse them. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I remember one scenario. Um, there was a uh, PD was on scene. This guy was suspected of using drugs. He'd been violent in the past. And, you know, our guidelines said you can give or set up to five milligrams. So I wanted to, uh, based on the patient's size and agitation level, I wanted to be able to go up to 10 IM um, just to kind of, you know, have the effect that I wanted um, without having to have that uh, time interval in between. So, you know, I stated what I was looking for. And, you know, if you explain to him, why are you calling, you know, because if it's in your, it's already in your guideline, you don't need to call MSEP for that. True. Right. And since then, yeah, a lot of guidelines have changed. Um, a couple of sub notes on these calls, if I could cover them, is uh, try to get everyone 
on the same page before you call consortium. Everyone should know someone is calling and what they're calling for, and everyone's normally in agreement. So comms on scene, always so critical. I think we cover this all the time, like effective, efficient communications, clear and concise. Everyone's in agreement. And you can tell the doc that they feel better about the scene. If there is a disagreement, though, that you can't resolve, consortium is another avenue to help, uh, to help settle that. So if there's two providers in total disagreement and you can't resolve it on scene, you've tried to resolve it, call the doc, tell them, I'm calling for a disagreement. We have the X patient, and here's what the disagreement is. And we basically want you to settle it, the right form of medicine. Yeah. You know. I think an important piece to remember, and that's a great uh, that's a great segue, Rob, but I think the important piece to remember is that although these emergency medical physicians, they, one, are not on scene, and two, might not have the field experience that a lot of our providers have. I think what our providers need to remember is that they are the subject matter experts. They operate under these guidelines every single day, call after call, you know, roughly 86,000 EMS calls per year. They're doing the job. Uh, second point is they're on scene. They're seeing all of the nuances of the scene that the physician may not be able to see. So you know what you're doing. When you're making that phone call, you paint the picture for the physician to tell them exactly what you want, exactly what you think, what your recommendations are, and you're just looking for clarification from the MCEP to be able to justify and validate those decisions that you've already made. So not using it as, for lack of a better word, a crutch. You're using it as something, a way to justify exactly what you know you want to do and why. And ultimately be able to provide better patient care. You know, operational issues or disagreements with Operational issues should be handled by the 7-8 or a 0-1. If it's an ambulance operational issue, the physician shouldn't be involved in that. It should just be medicine, patient care type stuff. Awesome. Yeah, I was going to ask you um, maybe at what point would you make a call to the consortium versus just calling 7-8? Um, maybe you could explain that, some of the some of the calls you get and, and the difference between what you do versus what a call to consortium would do sure a lot a lot of my calls <clears throat> i'd say chris correct me if you think i'm wrong probably 75 percent of my calls are straight up operational questions or advice difficult refusals How, which road to take is this correct what do you feel so i'll get calls on you know let's say hey i have a 17 year old this is a minor motor vehicle wreck um it's 2 a.m uh, kid is uninjured. I'm just wondering how to proceed. Like, what should I do with them? And I would say, well, what I would do is you have to leave them in a safe place. Number one, I'd make contact with a family member or a responsible adult. Oh yeah. Okay. I got that. I'll do that. And then I'll cut them loose. Great. Um, that's the kind of calls we get a lot of the time. Uh, the guys know most of the medicine goes through the consortium. And if it is a medicine question that I'm asked, I'll give my advice, but I'll remind them, hey, I'm, this isn't an order. You should call the consortium. That's part of my advice. Like, this isn't my wheelhouse. Yeah. And they'll go ahead and do that. But my phone is, the 78 phone is open uh, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So you can always call it. And we like those calls from crews. We encourage them. We're humbled every time we get a call 
and we get to give advice or, or help someone be more efficient on a call, yeah. ultimately provide better patient care. I would imagine that um, you'd probably prefer, you know, a call to you if it's uh, uncertain, if it needs to go to consortium. Like, I bet consortium might get some calls that they're just like, why are you calling me for this? This is in your guideline. Do you have any examples of, like, when it maybe it's not appropriate to call a consortium or, like, you know? Well, I think my first example is a, is a good one. You know, there's, you don't need a consortium for that type of refusal. My first example, you just need to really look in the guidelines and have some confidence and know really the road to take with it. It doesn't require a physician. If they did call a physician, a lot of times the consortium doesn't exactly know all the specific guidelines for certain things. They'd have to look them up themselves Mm -hmm. or they'd ask the provider, well, what do you think we should do? And does it sound reasonable? Yeah. So I think the first example is a good one of, of when to call a 7A or, you know, where to transport to. You know, we have a STEMI. It's Friday afternoon at 5. We're coming from 22s. Where should we go? And I would tell them, you should go downtown. It's close a business on a Friday. Just leave Rust alone. Just go downtown. Mm. That's the safest bet. So. Yeah. All right. Um, you mentioned different difficult uh, refusals a couple times. Do you have any uh, other examples of those? You know, I, I think a lot of people have a hard time with refusals. I don't, for me, I don't see what the problem is. Like, in my opinion, if the person is, you know, aware of the decision they're making, they're allowed to make a bad decision. And I don't really feel like I'm going to get in trouble ever for that. Um, what's your opinion on these refusals? And do you think sometimes people are a little bit too worried about accepting a refusal? Sometimes guys are worried about <clears throat> legal issues with a refusal or it's in their gut. That this is a tough one. We'll get a call on that. I think the big thing to remember with these refusals is we want to make sure someone is decisional and decisional is more than awake and alert times four or a person plays date time. Decisional is can they, do they understand the big picture? Do they understand consequences? Can they tell you everything that's going on? So we want to make sure, number one, someone is decisional. And after that, we want a good assessment, a thorough assessment on, on these patients. After that, at the end of the day, we want to you know, encourage people that need to go to go. And people that don't want to go, we want to be able to tell them the risks of not going clearly stated and documented. And then we always say, you know, patients are allowed to make a decision on their medical care and they're allowed to make a bad decision. We just need to be there to tell them it's a bad decision. And we need to be there for the provider to remind the provider that you did all this work on this refusal. So please document it concisely what you told the patient, what was going on. So you get credit. I joke guys all the time, they do a great job on the call, and I'll look at the chart, and the chart is like nothing happened. And I remind them that this chart justifies all the great work that you actually did, and it gives you credit for the work, and it's safe for your license and for the department to document it correctly on exactly, chronologically, what went down. Yeah, what what uh, are people leaving out, if you can remember specifically? Like you're saying all the stuff they do, 
which usually I agree, you know, we do the right thing for our patients. Um, what maybe documentation points should we take away for these refusals? We really do a great job. I mean, I've witnessed tons of tough refusals and great effort by the crews. I think what we leave out is the whole chronology, the chronologicalness per se of everything. You know, I offered, I offered Mr. West transport. He's refusing. I, I asked him why he's refusing because his insurance is expired. I told him that, you know, if he doesn't go, we, he could die from this, from this illness. And he understands that also. And I tried again. I even called his sister, who he talked to on the phone, and she was unable to talk him into it. And again, I repeated that, you know, he could die from these injuries, and he understood it clearly, and ultimately we got a refusal, per se, something like that. And just throw all that in the yeah, uh, transport put, part, T for the D chart? Um, I put it right in my, my treatment, because to me that's a treatment. Advice you're giving someone is what you did on scene. So I like to see it in the treatment, you know, offered transport, patient refused. I asked him why he refused. He told us this. I said this. He said this. And it shows multiple attempts, you know, if this guy dies the next day and we look at the chart, it just shows multiple effort and attempts to get him to go, and he was refusing. Okay, yeah, that's good advice. I think I could uh, take advantage of that, actually. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. I think uh, the point that Rob brings up, whenever there's a quality assurance issue that comes up, let's say, for instance, that patient who did refuse, and then we get a call back later that day or the next day, um, and that call becomes a nine echo, then the first thing that's going to go back is look at that, you know, family's going to say, you guys were just here, you know, we told you he needed to take him, but you didn't take him, right? So the first thing we're going to do is go back and look at that previous provider's report, or even that same provider's report, and say, what discussions did you have? And, you know, not every time, but there's sometimes where a lot of those details are left out. However, when we make the phone call to that provider, he paints a full picture of exactly what was said, and and all the offers that he made to the patient and they still refused. What we want to see is all of that documented in the narrative because that's the ultimate protection for the patient, ultimate protection for the provider and the organization as well. So if you take that extra five minutes to document some of those things that uh, Rob just previously discussed, it's better for everybody. I think what we need to remember as EMS providers is we don't diagnose in the field, right? We make differential diagnosis. We know what we think is going on. However, we can't force this patient to make a decision against their will. So if we make that good faith effort, keeping that in mind, good faith effort to offer transport to the patient, what their options are, what their risks are associated with that refusal, and we document everything that we said, then you're always going to be good. Nice. I wonder if we should just talk about involuntary transport real quick. Um, or you want to bring that up later? I had a couple um, difficult um, refusal things, so... Just real quick, I'll, we'll, we'll come back to the involuntary transport. The one I was um, going to ask you about is like the alcohol. You know, I think a lot of people remember that alcohol is going to impair your judgment. And um, some people think that if you drink any alcohol, you're not able to refuse um, medical care or transport based on your drinking. Now, what's going to be the cutoff? Because I don't think it's accurate that if you had a beer um, that you can't decide what you want to do with yourself. It's not. And, you know, I would never drag you out of your house after something went down in your house and you've had two beers. Um, it still go, relates backwards to, is he decisional? You know, and we described that earlier, so I'm not going to say that. But 
Is he impaired? Can he not make a decision? Or is he decisional? Is his gait okay? Can he walk? Can he get around? Is he in a safe place? That's one thing people forget. You know, a guy that's had a few beers in his house that's going to stay in the house, I think we have a more liberal view towards him as a guy that there's an issue and he's on Montgomery and San Mateo and has nowhere to go. So I think it really goes down to, you know, is he impaired or not? Can he walk? Is he in a safe environment? Would you agree, Chief? Yes, absolutely. And I think it's it's always situation dependent, of course. I think that same individual, you know, an intersection, um, the obvious concern is if we leave you here, are you going to stumble out into traffic, right, and hurt yourself or, or cause additional injuries? Um, so that's that's one of the pieces that you've got to think about when you're making your decision on whether this person can refuse or they can't refuse. Uh, along those same lines, just because a person may be experiencing homelessness or may be living at an intersection doesn't necessarily take away their right to refuse care or refuse transport. True. So I think you got to look at the entire picture. I don't think there's a set black and white guideline that you can set for, hey, if you're here, you do this. If you're here, you do that. I think it's just taking that full picture, remembering those words, a good faith judgment that this person understands the risks if they don't go to the hospital and they have a plan in place that if we don't go with us, they're going to be in a safe and secure environment. So I think it's, it's, I wish it was easy enough to be able to put into guideline, but unfortunately it's not. So I think as long as you're making that good faith effort on their behalf to give them all of their options and the risks associated with those options, that you're going to be in a good spot. All right. I would imagine that what we just spoke about for uh, alcohol and being impaired um, is the same apply for uh, psych calls. Because, you know, there's probably a situation where that person may not be aware of certain things ever at any point in their life, you know, so those seem a little bit tricky sometimes too. those psych calls. And, and for me, I fall back a lot of times on what environment are they going to be left in? Are they going to be left on the street? Because um, if they're displaying erratic behavior, you know, and there's a risk of going into traffic, that's one thing. But if they're, you know, with somebody that cares about them, then that's a different. So what about the cycles? And those can be a lot more difficult. I think the cut and dry for us is obviously if somebody expresses suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation, they want to hurt themselves or others, then that makes our decision easy, right? We have the ability to take that person against their will because they've stayed in an intent to hurt themselves or others. I think um, the gray area comes when you have somebody in a mental health crisis who maybe that is their baseline, um, then it's good to get a history from either them or somebody who might know them. Um, again, it's going to be situation dependent, but you always have to think in terms of, is this normal for this patient? Right? Is there a mental health crisis? Is it something that's going to be acute that needs to be addressed? And there's a medical underlying issue that's causing this psychosis, for lack of a better word, or is this baseline for them? They can still make decisions. They know what's going on. They're just having a bad day. And I think having that complete dialogue with them, getting to know them, taking, again, that extra five minutes on that scene to answer all those questions, that can really help. Now, what we don't want to do is dissuade providers from calling MSEP. If it's a gray area and you don't know what to do at that point, then that's when we ask you make that phone call to consortium, paint that full picture with an idea of what you want to happen with this patient, and then display that for them and let them make the ultimate decision. I think we have to remember that there's always the liability mentality that if I make this call to the doc, then my liability is waived. It's taken by them. And that's not necessarily the case. You're still in charge of the care of that patient. You're basically just using that MSEP as a guide from a medical direction standpoint to help you with the decision that you already had in mind. 
Yeah, I think uh, most people assume that, you know, going to the hospital is ultimately in the best interest of the patient. Um, but I guess this would be a good time to get into the involuntary transport. So just imagine, you know, you're sitting at your house and you've had a couple beers and for whatever reason, 911's called and, uh, you know, maybe your family member calls on you or something like that. And now they're trying to force you to the hospital against your will. Like I would be irate. So I would imagine that, um, that could cause as many problems as, you know, leaving somebody, uh, home when maybe you should have transported them. Have you had any examples of, uh, involuntary transports that weren't appropriate? Sure. Um, I think we're getting a lot better at them and a lot better respecting people's civil rights in this area and doing less involuntary transports nowadays. But there's been, there's been some calls where it's been some questionable uh, involuntary transports, and it it's always relates back to, I'd rather, instead of talking about cases, relate back to, you know, why it happened. You know, why it happened. The crews on scene didn't communicate. They didn't have a plan. A physician got involved, maybe a non-EMS physician, maybe an MSEP, who felt by the phone call relating back to what we first started at that got the feeling that no one knew what they were doing. Next thing you know, an order comes, just bring them in. Just, yeah, force transport. And they get short, and that's why, you know, I think... We have to methodically work through these calls and really give them our best. You know, if you look at the state statute, <clears throat> it says basically um, good faith, good faith decision by a licensed provider, EMT, with someone who has a life or limb threatening injury and who's non decisional. I'll just transcribe some of it non decisional and with MSEP, either written or verbal. So it's a pretty serious case to make someone go to the hospital. Most of the time you just deem them non-decisional and they're dangerous to themselves, let's say a dangerous illness or whatever, and they have to go that way. Does that describe it well enough? Yeah. So I guess some examples of, you know, non-decisional, you know, if you're severely impaired by drugs or alcohol, I'd imagine we get those calls a lot where um, this person is not making smart decisions and they're not able to decide, you know, what's in their best interest at the time. Absolutely. And I'd say 75% of our involuntary transports are suicidal calls that we can verify that they weren't from a third person. Let's say they have a history of SI. They sent a text to a girlfriend. We have the text. It's pretty cut and dry. They have to go. Cases like that, you know, again, Good communication on scene, get a plan, be honest with the patient, tell them what, what the deal is. Like, yeah. How do you handle that call? Because for me, you know, as soon as it's a, it's a clear cut, it's like you made this statement, uh, suicidal statement, say those actually seem pretty easy for me to handle. I'm just, you just real straightforward with the patient. I don't mm -hmm. know if you uh, could give an example of like how that might go down. If I'm the, uh, say the suicidal one, I sent a text my girlfriend, like, I just don't want to be here anymore or something like that. Right. I would say, Andrew, you know, I'm Rob. I'm one of the paramedics on scene. Reviewed what happened here. 
I know you're feeling bad. You made a suicidal statement. On that note, we have to take you to talk to someone. And it's not an option. It's non-negotiable. And I would actually like you just to go in peace and because we have to take you. And then if it gets more complicated, I'm still honest, non-judgmental. And I'll tell you, look, you know, time is ticking by. We have to take you. And we definitely want to go peacefully. But I can, you know, in 20 minutes, you're going to be at an emergency room. Whether or not we have to restrain you or you go peacefully. But that's just the deal. And a lot of times, if you're honest like that, they just sit down on the gurney. They're like, cool. Don't make it like, do you want to go? Of course they don't want to go. Yeah. So it's kind of a leading question that just starts a dispute. Would you agree? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that um, Rob's point of taking the time to communicate with them, showing empathy to their situation, um, maybe you don't relate to it, right? You don't have the same mental health crisis they're dealing with. You don't know what's going on in their life because you've only met them five minutes ago. But I think it's important to take that time to build that rapport, you know, not have a group mentality where it's, you know, four or five people standing around them telling them what they're going to do. Right. But maybe have one provider step aside with them to have that honest dialogue to say, look, the statements that you made, I realize they may have been made emotionally. However, we are bound by the fact that you made those statements. We want to make sure that you're taken care of. So this is what we have to follow. We're going to get you down there, let you talk with somebody. And assuming that everything's okay, you'll be on your way. But just kind of letting them know our roles and responsibilities as soon as they make that statement and kind of building that rapport, building that empathy, as opposed to saying, you're coming with us. It's going to be the easy way or the hard way. You kind of take that extra moment to say, hey, we're just looking out for you. We care about you. Let's get you seen and then get you back about your day. Yeah. And, you know, I always... If there's almost, if there's just no doubt, you know, in your mind when you're talking to the person, like, you know, nine one one was called, we're here, you are end up going to the hospital. There's no way around that. You know, if you're kind of just straightforward with it, not not like kind of like a jerk about it, like, you know, the easy way or the hard way, but you're just like straightforward. You're like, you know, we have to. We've I've been on, you know, dozens of these, you know, within the last year and it always goes the same way. Like you need your phone charger, you want to grab your phone, you want to grab a book, whatever. Um, I think that's, you know, when they know, like, look, there's no option, the, the cops are here, this only ends up one way. Absolutely. I like to get, you know, one person talking, like a lead. To me, there's nothing more confusing or irritating when you have four or five people taking turns talking to one person because that person just sees chaos. He can trust one person that person gives them the real information and it really works out good. Yeah. Having that one-on-one -on -one connection, I think is the most helpful. And I love the phone charger idea. Hey, can we get this? Can we do that? Let's get you ready to go. <clears throat> one of the big ones I know we all encounter on scenes is what can I smoke a cigarette? Mm -hmm. And honestly, maybe some of us don't smoke and we don't want to be around cigarettes. I smoke. let them smoke. <laughs> but if we take that extra yeah. two minutes to let them smoke their cigarette and then we get going, a lot of times you'll be able to avoid a lot of confrontation on scene just by giving them, like giving them the power to make the decision. Yeah, I'm going to smoke the cigarette real quick and then we'll go treating them like a human being. I think it's what we all do. We're all good at. Um, it can be difficult, right? At two in the morning after our 25th call of the day, sometimes that's not easy, but from a safety perspective for not only the patient, but for you and your crew, if you take that extra two minutes to just build that rapport and humanize them, it's going to make a huge difference. I agree. If I can, if I can give a guy four drags on a cigarette, Instead of restraining them, I'll do it every time. Yeah. I, I don't care how long it takes. Yeah, that's easy. 
All right. So I think uh, something else that complicates the issue we talked about, like drugs and alcohol, maybe uh, psych calls, but when APD is on scene and people are in handcuffs that for, at least for me, that kind of always throws a wrench into it of like, well, what are these, what is this person's, uh, what are their rights now at this time? Like they're in custody, they've got handcuffs on, like, are they allowed to, um, say they want to go to the hospital for a stub toe? Um, where does that them being under arrest, where does that affect their treatment? I think one of the best places to start and what I always did as a field provider was making contact with APD first. We show up on scene and there's typically APD officers around the individual and they're sitting down, maybe cuffed, maybe not. I think pulling one of the officers aside, whoever the lead is, and finding out, is this person in custody? Are they under arrest? That's probably step number one because then it starts to guide your decision making from that point. From an EMS perspective, however, it doesn't really change things. It just kind of just alters the dynamic a little bit and there's more discussion between you and APD. So, for instance, if that person is in custody or not in custody, we're being called out for their medical needs. That's why APD is requesting us or that's why the patient's requesting us. So at that point, irrespective of their custodial status with APD, they are the patient and they're going to be making the decision for their health care. So if we think that it's just a stub toe and, oh, no, you're going to be fine, or they're saying I'm having chest pain, we can't disregard that in any capacity. We have to treat the patient honor their decisions, and offer them the same transportation to the hospital as we would for an individual sitting in their home. Yeah, I just had a call the other day. Um, it was a weird one. Apparently, when APD uses force, they call a rescue out to uh, check the patient out. So that's in their policy. Um, actually, I had one more thing I want to bring up about policies at a nursing home. I'll, I'll back on that later but with the APD policy they use force now they have to call a rescue um, but I don't think they're always prepared for what's going to happen when they call a the rescue they're like well we just want you to check them out I'm like well I showed up and now the person says they want to go to the hospital so you know where do you, what do you want me to do with this uh, do you get called out for that a lot Rob all the <clears throat> excuse me all the time it happens a lot and when I get on those scenes I usually make contact with the sergeant Obviously, the patient who's handcuffed wants to go to the hospital to get evaluated for something. APD called us out. I always explain to the sergeant that, you know, you guys called us. We see him as a patient. He has rights. He's requesting transport. We'd like to be able to do that for him. And then it gets into a whole custody issue with them. And if you want me to talk about the handcuffs and all this yeah, right now? Yeah, all of it, sure. because, uh, you know, my situation, this guy was in handcuffs. They used force, which is why they called us, to uh, check this patient out. Uh, he didn't want to go to the hospital, but, uh, you know, then, it, then sometimes you have issues of, like, if the patient says they're fine, they don't want any treatment, well, now they have to sign a refusal, and sometimes the, the cops are you know, unwilling or unwanting to unhandcuff them because they were just struggling with this person. So there's so many issues. Um, another one I, I think about is, you know, if this person is in custody for say a violent crime or, you know, stabbing somebody, um, and they're going to get transported in the, in the ambulance. A lot of times the cops don't want to leave their car on scene and have to ride in the back with you to keep them handcuffed. So, all of a sudden now we're just going to take this guy out of handcuffs and have him ride in the hot into the hospital with you. And then, 
you know, my mind always goes to like, what happened to the scene security? You know, we had cops here protecting us. And now if we're just going to let this person out of handcuffs and assume he's going to be cooperative with us the whole time. Sure. Let me cover the, the physical signature of a refusal first. If you have a dangerous person in handcuffs that APD doesn't even want to take off the handcuffs so he can sign a refusal, don't make him sign. You know, there's a witness there. You can just put patient is unable to sign due to handcuffs and have uh, another person on scene or an officer just witness it that he doesn't want to go. That way that solves that. <clears throat> as far as handcuffs go, so we have a, there's a, there's a policy on this. Um, if, if APD wants them to go to the hospital in handcuffs, they can be handcuffed uh, frontwards in their lap, and an officer must ride, okay? Now, like you said, a lot of times they don't have a car. They have numerous reasons for not wanting to do this. Um, we cannot transport someone in handcuffs without an officer there. And then it gets to the, the point of, okay, well, we're just going to follow. We're going to put this guy in the truck then. Fine, you guys win. We'll just follow. If the provider thinks it's, a dangerous situation, they need to speak up and say, look, I'm uncomfortable with this guy in this situation. It's a safety hazard. We really want you guys to get someone to ride in with him cuffed. And that's cool. That's how we want to do this. And then it could be where you start calling supervisors on in that. Um, what do we do? We restrain. We medically restrain. And there's a difference. You know, we don't do custody. We're not cops. We medically restrain. And that's a patient that's physically threatening, actively threatening you that could be dangerous or has showed you he can be dangerous and you're going to physically restrain him. If he's in custody and APD asks us to physically restrain him, we're evaluating the patient. If he doesn't deserve medical restraints, then we don't do medical restraints. That's just how it goes. We can't take away people's civil rights because cops don't want to ride in. You know, we just don't do that. There's risk. There's liability to us. Did I cover that? Enough? Yeah, I think you. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that uh, it always comes down to patient safety and provider safety. Mm -hmm. So that I think the key point in there is to remember is that if they are wearing cuffs and they have to stay in cuffs, one, it's never cuffed to the gurney. That never happens. They're always cuffed uh, to the front, just with their hands. Um, and the officer does have to ride in. It's non-negotiable. There's no way around it. Um, the other side of that is going from cuffs straight into restraints um, from, from strictly just a custody standpoint. That never happens either. So the only time medical restraints are used, like Rob alluded to, is for medical need or for patient and provider safety. Yes. Just because this person just committed a violent act and they're calm now doesn't warrant going from cuffs into a four-point restraint. So a lot of times that dialogue just has to happen, frankly and honestly, with the officers to let them know. Typically away from the patient is probably best to avoid amping up that situation at all. But as long as you have that dialogue with the officer, you guys should come to a common ground. Again, if it comes to a situation where you're just not agreeing on it, then involve the supervisors, involve the 7-8, involve their sergeant, and up their chain of command um, to make sure that you're doing right by the patient and right by the organization. So as long as you are patient-centered and focused on them first, irrespective of the legal issues that this individual is going through, you're always going to be in a good spot. I mean, I've been on calls where we've had guys that are so scary that we just said, you know what, that they were handcuffed and we want to keep them handcuffed. 
and we want an officer in there and they don't want to do it. And I've just told them, look, this guy, we're uncomfortable with this. We're not going to do it. Get someone to write in. We feel safer that way. Seven minutes to you and M or whatever. Try to convince them. And it always seems to work out if you ask. But you have to ask. Yeah. What if the cops are like, hey, we'll just take this guy in? Good question. So there's three, there's three reasons APD can transport to the hospital or a medical facility. Psychiatric patients that are, you know, uninjured, that are just going to Caseman ITU or somewhere like that or UNM psych. Um, Matt's patients, they can take someone, give them transport to Matt's, and they can take a, uh, a rape patient to, the, to meet a sane nurse if that's the way that patient wants to go. That's the three, three ways. So if we have a guy, let's say, that's injured, that has a big lack on his head, that's half drunk or whatever, and it becomes a little bit of a pissing match, and APD says, you know what, we'll just take him to press. We're supposed to take him. Let's just find a way, a safe way to do it for his safety or her safety and our safety, for everyone's safety. Yeah, so you just can't let that be the answer. You have to call 7-8 at that point or get somebody else involved if you're not able to uh, reason with the officer and explain what our guidelines are. Correct. There's never a circumstance where uh, an officer, APD, Bernalillo County Sheriff's can sign a refusal on the behalf of a patient. So it has, as soon as you're out there evaluating that patient, they're yours. Either the refusal comes from them. Again, if they can't sign because of the handcuffs, then that'll be documented well in the D chart. But if it's a matter of, ah, he's not going to go with you, I'll sign for him. That doesn't happen. And that's where you need to start involving your chain. Got it. Yeah. Well put. All right. Um, Let's see, since we're on the topic of APD, um, you know, I always remembered for those um, suicidal calls that, you know, there's three reasons you can force transport was a suicidal statement, homicidal statement, and like gross negligence is what I thought I learned at one point. Um, And then somewhere along the way, I heard of a certificate of evaluation where it's like there's a doctor um, writing a order that this person must be transported for a psych eval. Correct. Yes. Yeah, so a certificate for evaluation is an order that's written by a mental health clinician um, that is uh, enacted upon by a law enforcement agency. So it's strictly a law enforcement statute. So the mental health physician says that, hey, I think this individual needs to have a mental health evaluation. Um, they sign off on it. A judge signs off on it. And then either Albuquerque police or Bernalillo County sheriffs, they enforce that order pick up that individual and then bring them to the mental health facility where the order was uh, written from. There's been some gray area now to where an EMS has become involved with this more and more to where the ask, not always, but sometimes was, Hey, we have the certificate for evaluation. We need to get this individual transported down to wherever um, to execute that evaluation. So that's where it gets gray for us because we do not operate under that statute that law enforcement follows to make somebody go to the hospital against their will. So if we arrive on scene for a certificate of evaluation call, that patient has no medical complaint, they're exhibiting clear judgment, and they do not want to go with us, then that would be a refusal from that patient. The law enforcement officer would be the one that has to enforce that certificate for evaluation and complete the transport. That being said, there, there's obviously some gray areas. You're going to get there, and maybe there's an individual who may not be exhibiting clear judgment. They don't want to go with us, but you don't think they really understand the ramifications of their refusal. Yeah, there's probably, a, I would imagine, if they have that you know, certificate for evaluation, there might be some kind of a abnormal judgment 
in the first place, which is why they're being ordered in to the hospital. Absolutely. Or secondarily, you arrive and you find a medical component that you think might be contributing to this mental health crisis. I think at that point, if the individual still is adamant about not going, even though they have a medical condition or not exhibiting that clear judgment, is the perfect opportunity to make that phone call from the scene to either 781st or to the consortium. And, you know, there's no wrong answer either way because these uh, the 78s are going to steer you in that direction if they don't feel comfortable with the decision. Uh, so then I think that's when it's important for these certificate evaluations, especially to paint that full picture for the physician that you're calling to say, hey, we have this certificate for evaluation. Here's what we saw when we got here. Would you prefer that this person gets a medical evaluation prior to being transported for just their mental health condition? And many times the uh, physicians, once they hear the full story, they can make just a better educated decision on the best destination for that patient. Awesome. And uh, sorry, I skipped this one earlier. This, this probably should have gone into the uh, difficult refusal category. And it's not difficult because of the patient. But, uh, you know, when I was at 13s, we'd go to a nursing home a lot. And it was almost as if like the staff just didn't even go to the person and say, um, are you injured? You know, it's just, oh, this person fell. And then they were like, well, we have a policy where um, if there's a fall that this person is forced to go into the ER, you know, that's just their policy. Sorry. And so it's almost as if they think that their policy is going to override the rights of this, this patient. Um, so those have been some tricky situations. I don't know how often that comes up from the seven, eight point, but a lot. Yeah. That situation. I'm so glad you brought it up. First things first in a case like that, let's do a good evaluation of the patient. Let's not get mixed up with the staff right away. Let's do a good, honest evaluation, good vital signs, really a good history and see what went, what happened. And then I just saw I was getting out of bed and, uh, you know, I slipped down onto the floor, didn't hurt myself at all. Right. So we would evaluate that patient, see if they are hurt. My next step with that really is to see what the staff's take on it is, just to see where they're coming from. And they'll say, okay, it's our policy. She yeah. go get checked out. Right? Well, we can't check. We can't check them. We don't have an x-ray machine, so they have to go to the right. ER. And they don't want to go, right? Yeah. And, and they're decisional. Yeah, My, no, I'm fine. I just, I need some help up, but they wouldn't help me up. They've, I've been on the floor for the last 15 minutes. My next step is I really want to see if there's a POA, if they make their own decisions or a POA makes them for. So always, always, always call family from a nursing home coordinate with them. It's their loved one. They want to be involved. So I'll always call the first person on the list, the decision maker, whether it's a sister, daughter, whoever, talk with them. And then if they're like, yeah, um, I make decisions and, you know, she can refuse. Of course, we're going to let them refuse. And the staff just, that's just how it is. We're not going to tie her up, bring her in because the staff says to take her. It's not right. Yeah. And we're also not going to go against, you know, the power of attorney wishes, the patient wishes, you know, but they, a lot of times they're just like, well, it's our policy. And, um, you know, you got to be a patient advocate, I guess, out there on the scenes and and don't let those uh, nursing homes get away with, you know, these policies that they create that aren't actually uh, in the right, you know, the right. Yeah, they're not doable. And I think part of good patient care at a nursing home, like I said, I can't say it more over than calling that family seeing what their take is on it, what they would like to see done. And sometimes the family's like, you know what? I actually would love for you guys to bring her in. Uh, 
she's fallen three times over the last three weeks, and God, I'll meet you at press. And then we can tell the uh, patient, hey, you know, we talked to your daughter. She really would like us to take you in, and let's go get evaluated. And I think it's a win-win that way. I agree. And to take that a step further, you possibly may encounter some nursing home facilities or even independent living facilities for the elderly community who, within their policy, they cannot help individuals up off the floor. So they're calling us out because they fell and we can't pick them up. I think at that point, again, like Rob said, as opposed to, you know, starting your interaction with why can't you do this with that staff, then I think really your focus needs to be on that patient. So irrespective of their transport decision, let's get that patient up off the floor. I realize that in some circumstances it's frustrating because we go to the same facility over and over for the same complaint and we feel like there's an unwillingness to help, but we're not going to let their policies dictate what our mission is. So if we get there on scene, we have an individual who's on the floor, first and foremost, let's gladly help them up because they're not the ones that call typically. It's someone else who called on their behalf. And then once you get them up in a more comfortable position, perform that full assessment, and then make contact with the POA. And nine times out of 10, the POA is going to have a reasonable reason to either keep them where they are or go ahead and have them transported. But at that point, we have to honor that decision, but let's get them up off the floor first, which seems like you know an easy answer and a no-brainer, but just keeping that empathy with the individual who maybe didn't call, they're just falling victim to the policy of the situation that they're in. Right. Yeah, of course, we're going to help them off the floor. Where do we go with policies like that? Is that uh, 911 abuse? Is that calling 7-8 and having a talk with that facility manager? Um, are those policies legal? You know, if they're, they're like, well, we can't, yeah, we can't touch them. Once they fall, we have to call you. And, you know, my argument to one of them, one of the, uh, the supervisors was you're using us as staff, you know? So it, almost like, you know, you're, using 911 as, as staff to lift people up? Sometimes it might feel that way. I can tell you at certified facilities, meaning certified meaning like, you know, real facilities with people in them, what we won't do is move patients around. We'll never leave someone on the floor. But if they call us to say, you need to move this guy from the bed to the wheelchair just because we don't have enough people, that's the signal to call 7-8 and let's get involved with the staff. Someone's on the floor. It's not the time to argue about who should have picked him up. Let's just get him up and deal with him as a patient. It is what it is. Um, I always tell the crews, you know, if you're going to have a, you know, let's not fight with the staff. If you can have a disagreement, make it over patient care and not your own ego. And every time you argue on behalf of your own ego, you've already half lost the battle and you've almost always won if your argument is based on the patient. Yeah. Well, if you want to make that argument for patient care, it's like this person's been on the ground for 15 minutes. And as soon as we showed up, they're alert and oriented times four. And they said they have no complaint and you, you know, that seemed like it was not in their best interest to leave them on the ground so long. So that, that would be a, my only comeback to that statement is in the interest of patient care of, you know, why is that a, why is that a policy, I guess? Well, a lot of these facilities have non-medical staff that are really kind of adult babysitting, watching people, letting someone know if they need help. That rarely happens in a nursing home unless it's a bariatric patient. A nursing home has nurses and techs and people to do that. 
So it's mostly retirement communities that that goes down at, right, Chief? Absolutely. And this has actually been a situation that we've encountered before. And to your point, like, does that become an EMS abuse issue? We're always, I'm very hesitant about throwing around the word EMS abuse because typically there's a reason why people are calling. And even though we might not agree with it being an emergency, um, it's still an appropriate use of EMS because they did need our help. Um, to that note, however, if you have a facility who's continually having these issues, then it's important to involve the 7-8. And me personally, Rob personally, have gone down to facilities, talked with directors of nursing, talked with owners of the facility to work out um, some sort of agreement and a collaboration to say, okay, here's what we do. Tell us what you do. And then we find some middle ground on how we can help. And then we take that back to the field crews to say, okay, we've met with this organization. Here's what their policies are. Here's what they're asking of us. And a lot of times there's some middle ground in there. So very rarely is there a situation that we encounter where we just hit a dead end. We can usually find resolution um, after we talked with the staff. It's just typically not something that we want to do. One, in in front of the patient. Or two, you know, at three in the morning, again, you're not going to have that appropriate dialogue. So Let's help them up. Let's do what they're asking. Report to seven eight, and then we'll work on it from an administrative standpoint with their staff on the back end. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Uh, you guys have any closing thoughts on this topic? Gosh, such a good topic. Um, super excited to get it out there on a podcast as a force multiplier. Um, I have nothing to add. How about you, Chief? Any? closing takeaways for people? No, I think I just want to reemphasize the fact that our providers are doing a great job day in and day out. And then doesn't go unrecognized by fire administration doesn't go unrecognized by the seven eights. I think we know the hard work that the men and women of this department do day in and day out. I think the biggest thing we ask is that they um, are able to showcase that by writing good narratives, these difficult situations to where we don't encounter every day um, that they put enough in their narrative to be able to paint the picture That way, if there's ever an issue that comes up from a human resources perspective or a QA perspective, um, we're able to address it and we're able to defend them. And the D chart is typically when they have the opportunity to do that. And I think it's important also to remember to remind providers to know when to ask for help. You're our subject matter experts. We get that. But there's some circumstances you come across where you just don't know what to do. And I think that's the appropriate time to pick up the phone any time of day. Call 7-8. You know, call my phone. And let's help you work through that problem. And if it's more of a treatment issue, then involve that consortium because they're available 24-7. I know there was a discussion about should we call them for simple things. I think think it through first. Try 7-8, but don't be afraid to use that consortium line because they want to learn. They're there for us. And kind of that's what they're there for. And we have the luxury. We should utilize them. Yeah, A lot of calls that I get, whatever I'm doing, I could be busy. And someone will say, hey, Rob, do you have a minute? And my next question is, are you on scene? And if they say no, great, I'll call you back. Give me 10. If they are, I'll drop whatever I'm doing to listen to whatever issue they have on scene. I'll step out of a room on a cardiac arrest. It doesn't matter. I'll be there to answer that question. Yeah, I've always uh, appreciated, you know, the seven eights because they've got that. They've already had that experience in that position. And now you're just, sometimes you're just, leaning on them as a resource, you know, it might not be the time for an MSEP call, but you're just kind of trying to get their judgment, their field, their like field judgment. Consult. Yeah. What yeah. would you do in this? And, um, you've made it so easy for us. You know, I think all of them actually, I, I feel like all of the seven eights, I know well enough to say that, um, they don't mind helping out and they appreciate those calls. So it's our job to help out. It's our job to make, to help everyone be, be more efficient and ultimately provide better patient care. That's really what we're here for as a support 
structure for the crews. All right. All right, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening to the AFR podcast. We'll talk to you on the next episode. Thanks.